You may have noticed there's, uh, there's several uh, different things this morning, one of them obviously being so many husbands without their wives as they're at the retreat, and, uh, and I'm obviously not the one you usually see up here. Uh, Brian got a, got a week off to, to recuperate from uh, many, many weeks in a row of teaching, and so uh, I get the privilege of teaching this morning. Um, as, as you probably uh, may know, but maybe some of you don't, I'm David Amon, and normally I, uh, I'm wearing the hat of administration and design and communications and finances and all the other things behind the scenes, which is kind of where I, I somewhat prefer to be. Uh, this makes me a little more nervous to be here as, I, as this isn't my normal, normal place. Normally I'm sitting out there and then at the Welcome Center and, and, uh, and I love being out there. I love doing those things. I love serving in, in this ministry in that way. Um, but I'm also really excited that I get to be up here this morning and I get to share from God's word with you uh, what he's been teaching me, uh, what I've been learning and, and what God's uh, just been doing uh, really through Psalm 1 this week in my heart. Um, and so uh, this morning we're going we're to dive into the Psalms. You may have noticed a theme in our worship. You'll notice it after the message as well, uh, that we've really been singing through a lot of praises that come from the Psalms, our, our meditation that came uh, from the Psalms. And, uh, and this morning I'm going to preach from Psalm 1. Uh, but before we dive into that, I, I just want to give, by way of illustration, I wanted you to think about, if you head over to Twitter or Facebook or any number of blogs on any day of the week, maybe even this morning, uh, you'll notice that those resources, those social media outlets really have become a place where we express emotion. Those are the places where you find that we, uh, we kind of we go to that event. Uh, we might go there to have kind of a communal gathering of anger or maybe joy or frustration or to get advice or any number of things. Our Facebook accounts, our Twitter feeds, our, our, our blogs have become the place where we go to sing the praises of loved ones or things, things that we love and we're passionate about. Those are the places where we go to celebrate the greatest joys as well as also to look for comfort in the greatest sorrows. The, the Facebook feed and, and the, the status updates and the Instagrams and the blogs have really become for us this place where we go to vocalize our emotions and to share our emotions really with the world. Um, and those are also places where we go to, to share our spirituality. Uh, maybe we'll cry out in anger towards God. Maybe those are the places where we bring things we don't understand and we also sing his praises sometimes for answered prayers. Well, in a way, the Psalms are kind of like Facebook and Twitter and blogs of today. Now, I don't want to take this analogy too far. Don't get me wrong. The Psalms don't go to quite the same extent to maybe bash a certain political figure or celebrate the latest in pop culture. They don't promote one's self-image nearly as much as those tools do. However, the Psalms, in the same way that Facebook and Twitter and social media have provided an emotional outlet are the same thing in God's word. The Psalms connect with our need as human beings to express emotion. The Psalms allow us to bring our frustration, our greatest joys, one-on-one before God. They connect both our thoughts and our feelings with him and with his provision in our life. This morning we're going to dive into Psalm 1 and its significance in our lives But before we actually go to Psalm 1, you can go ahead and open up to Psalm 1 if you'd like. I I want to give a little bit bit of introduction to the overall idea of Psalms. Um, I really love the Psalms. I I took a class in Psalms once, and it kind of ignited this passion in me and helped me recognize just how important it is for my communication with God, my honesty with God, my emotions to connect with God, where I am spiritually, to be connected with who God is, with his character, with his provision in his life, and how I response how I respond to those different times. You might also have found that you love the Psalms. Maybe it's because you have a favorite passage that comforts you in times of sorrow and grief. 
Maybe it's because some psalmist has expressed the joy that you've felt at different times in your life and you just identify with what you find in the psalms. You'll notice that even in in our pop culture, even in political figures, even in speeches that a president may give or in other things, that the psalms are pretty popular. They're probably about as well-known as any other book of the Bible outside of even the church. And even within the New Testament, we see that the psalms along with Isaiah are the most often quoted books of the Old Testament in the New Testament. For some reason, the psalms have kind of grasped us. They grasp us because they connect with our emotions and it has connections with every bit of the human experience. Listen to this list of 24 different human emotions that we see in the psalms. Loneliness. I'm not going to give you the psalm reference. If you'd like it later, I can give it to you because there's 24 of them and that's too many. Loneliness. I am lonely and afflicted. Love. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Awe. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Sorrow. My life is spent with sorrow. Regret. I am sorry for my sin. Contrition. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Discouragement and turmoil. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Shame. Shame has covered my face. Exaltation. In your salvation, how greatly we exult. Marveling. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Joy. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Gladness. I will be glad and exult in you. Fear. Serve the Lord with fear. Anger. Be angry, but do not sin. Peace. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Grief. My eye wastes away because of grief. Desire. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. Hope. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Brokenheartedness. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Gratitude. I will thank you in the great congregation. Zeal. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Pain. I am afflicted and in pain. And confidence. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Did that cover it? Did that cover the range of emotions you probably experience in a typical day, week, year? Probably nothing that you can experience in life hasn't been in some way addressed by the psalmists. And that is where we find this human connection with the psalmist that in some ways is unlike any other part of scripture. These psalms, when we read them, when we pray on them, when we meditate on them, when we find our life in them, are capable of shaping our minds and shaping our thought processes and shaping our view of God. While the psalms were obviously written by man, we see the human emotion, human expression, human frustration and anger and joy and delight and all these things in them, We see their titles. We see that it's a psalm of David, a psalm of Asaph, a psalm of the sons of Korah, and so on. We can see these experiences that they describe are human experiences. However, the psalms at the same time were God-inspired. Jesus points to the fact that the psalms were inspired by the Holy Spirit when he quotes Psalm 110 in Mark 12, 36, saying, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Well, David himself in the psalms, through the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is quoting David 
giving him credit, but also through the work of the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, we know from 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. So unlike the Facebook feeds, unlike the social media, unlike Twitter, those emotions are human, but they may not be inspired by God. But when we look to the Psalms, we see these human emotions, which are both the human experience, but also God's inspiration. So not only do the Psalms connect with you and I because of the shared human experience, but they're used by God as a means of instruction in our lives. God speaks to us through the Psalms, and he teaches us how we both ought to think and feel. When we're angry, how do we bring that to God? When we're afraid of something unknown, something scary, something that worries us, something terrible that's happened, when we're going through a grief process and we're sorrowing, how do we bring that to God? When we're celebrating the greatest joys, how do we recognize God in those joys? How do we bring him glory because of what he's done in our lives? I believe that God has given us the Psalms as an instruction manual and as a guidebook, as a hymn book, and as a collection of prayers so that both our thinking and our feeling can be shaped by him. We'd be remiss if we looked at the Psalms in the same way that we look at the history in the Chronicles or in the same way that we look at the laws in Leviticus or perhaps the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah and what they say or even the Gospels. You see, the Psalms are meant to alter our emotions, to move us, not just to inform us. While at the same time, they're not only an emotional outlet, they instruct us in our responses to those emotions, in our handling of life's problems, and in our daily decision-making. Before we jump into, into Psalm 1, I want to give you a little bit of a picture that, is, that I'm going to carry through a little bit in our, in our time together today. Um, it hopefully will illustrate what these verses are getting at here in Psalm 1. And I'd like to tell you about two men who are very important in my life, two men whom I love and care about a lot, two men from whose lives I have learned a ton, and hopefully they'll help illustrate the, the contrast that we're going to see here in Psalm 1. Uh, this, the story of two men uh, begins much the same. They have a lot of things in common. Uh, both of these men, when they were young, uh, were very deeply committed to their families. Both of these men, when they were young, had this, un, this overwhelming love for their kids. They were committed to raising them in a godly home, committed to doing whatever they can to give their kids the best possible things that they could have in this world. These men also loved their wives. These men didn't have any clue, just like none of us do, when they said, I do, what that meant. And yet, they were committed wholeheartedly to their wives. They were sold out to loving their wives in this early part of their life. They were both taught God's word. They both grew up in homes where they experienced the power that God's word can have in someone's life. They both were leaders in their church. They both were leaders in their home and in Bible studies and in other people's lives. They both were successful men in business. They weren't professionals in the ministry. They were just men in business, but they had a heart for God and they saw blessing in their life as a result of what they were, how they were living and how God was working in their lives. They were driven and passionate about the things that they put their minds to and they were both incredibly successful. The differences end there, though. Before I tell you more about the differences in their life, we need to jump into Psalm 1 a little bit. So let's look at this together. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 1. We're going to read the entire psalm together. And then we'll, uh, we'll see what God has for us this morning. I'm reading out of the ESV, um, but just follow along with me. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's dive into this passage first by asking a couple questions. Why does this passage begin with this progression, this idea of walking, standing, and sitting? What's the significance of this? Why didn't the psalmist just say, don't be wicked, and then just move on from there? I mean, that's pretty easy, isn't it? Well, the point of this passage isn't necessarily to not be wicked. The point of this passage is not about wickedness versus non-wickedness. The point of this passage, as you're going to see as we go through this, and the reason for this introduction, is that we have to realize that we are going to be influenced by something. The question is, what is going to influence us? Where are we going to look for our responses, our counsel, in times of need? Verse 1 sets up a stark contrast with verse 2. You see, either you're going to take the counsel of the wicked, and the sinner, and the scoffer, and you're going to find satisfaction and joy in those things, or... Verse 2 is going to speak to who you are. That your delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law you will meditate day and night. No one becomes wicked out of duty. No one sins because it's the responsibility, it's what I must do. It just happens. At first, we watch, and then we take part, and then we find our delight in these things of the world. It wasn't intentional at first. Just kind of happened. It was there. And now it's deeply ingrained in everything about you or me. Think about the influences around you. Think about the people that you look to for guidance on a regular basis. When I think about this progression and was thinking about how can I illustrate this, what does this look like? Shannon and I were talking and we thought about conversations that happen around the table, maybe at your middle school or high school, maybe at your your, uh, workplace, maybe it's the lunch table, or maybe it's a dinner party that you have in your home. And how often have you been in the midst of a conversation that perhaps it's about relationships? Maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend, maybe a husband or wife, maybe about parents or children. And it starts off as one person's mm, small complaint about that significant other, about that person in their life. And it quickly turns into a gripe fest. It quickly turns into something where the chatter goes from bad to worse. What could have begun even as an innocent remark quickly gets dragged downward as one complaint after another is lodged. In these moments, it's difficult not to participate. You might be the outsider at first, but our tendency is to want to be accepted in these circles, to want to engage with our friends, to want to engage with our coworkers, with our peers at school. We desire those friendships, and so we slowly slide into a comfortability with these conversations. What first made us cringe, made us angry, made us upset, somewhat becomes, eh, well, that's just how they are, that's just them. And then at some point we, we kind of tiptoe into it and, and we start to participate a little bit. We throw in a, a little comment here or there, not a comment of, yeah, well, you should have heard what my boyfriend did for me. You should have heard what my wife did for me. Oh, but my children? Yeah, yeah, they, you know, they do that once in a while, but I love them. Instead of that, you slowly step into this conversation and you start to engage with this conversation. We slowly slide into a comfortability and then we become, become, become attuned to this counsel. We listen to the things that are being said around us. 
No sound advice or wise counsel is coming from these circles of friendships many times. There's nothing inherently wrong with having these friendships. But is this where we're finding our counsel? Is it in circles of these kind of conversations where we're looking for wisdom? When we stoop to the level of participating in unwholesome counsel, in unwholesome conversations, we stand on the edge of a very slippery slope. You see, delighting in God allows us to have influence on others. But when we're not delighting in God, they're going to influence us. The point of this passage and the reason for this introduction is that we have to realize that we are going to be influenced by something. The question is, what is going to be our influence? These actions, this lifestyle, this influence happens because it feels good. We get pleasure out of these things. We find delight in living for ourselves so often. These phrases beg for some reflection. And you could easily dismiss them a quick reading if you, if you just read through it and didn't really think about it and just say, wicked, sinner, scoffer? Well, no one's ever called me wicked. Yeah, maybe I'm, I'm mean sometimes or maybe you know, I've been told that I'm, I have a short temper, but I'm not wicked. And sinner? Well, yeah, I know I'm a, I sin, but, but sinner, that's such a strong word. That, nah, that's not me. And scoffer? Psh, the only thing I scoff at is that team that beat my team last week. I, I don't scoff. That's, that's not really scoffing. And so we quickly just move on from these words. We quickly gloss over Psalm 1-1, and we look at the next verse, and we say, oh, but this is us. This is me. I delight in these things. But if we really think about it, that may not be true. Listen to this perspective from one of the commentators I was reading this week. He says, Anyone who considers himself strong enough to control sin should heed the warning of this passage. There is a subtle, almost invisible quality about sin that draws its victims into a deeper and deeper involvement. The words walk, sit, and stand, and the nouns ungodly, sinners, scorners, or scoffers all hint at this subversive buildup of influence and immorality. Once a person allows sin to get a start in his life, it begins to drag him along in its undertow. Eventually, he sits in the seat of the scoffers, hardened and at ease in his sin. Oh, but that's not you. That's not me. Because we read over those verses and we say, I'm not a scoffer. I'm not wicked. That can't be me. So then is verse 2 true of us? Verse 2 says, He delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Perhaps at this first mention of law, at first you cringe and you say, no, not the law, let's not talk about that. Not a list of rules, not regulations. I have freedom in Christ. Well, I'm not here to give you a list of rules. The psalmist isn't about a list of rules. In fact, this is best understood in its original context, not as law, but as instruction. And when the original readers would have thought of the instruction of God, they thought of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, which is actually the word used here. And for us, we know that because we have Jesus, because we have the fullest extent of God's word here, this instruction is referring to the whole counsel of God's word. This contrast is to have another delight, another preoccupation. What is it that keeps me up at night? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that we truly value? It's the thoughts, the priorities, the activities that we spend time thinking on and planning for and worrying about. Those are the things where we have placed our value. The things which cause us the greatest delight are usually the things which keep us occupied the most. Is that true? The challenge from this verse is to find yourself pondering God's word as you wake up in the morning and to be find yourself, finding yourself muttering scripture under your breath when fear overtakes you in that moment of anxiety. 
looking to his word for wisdom and advice in moments of the unknown, and in the end, just desiring to have a greater depth and understanding of God's word than we have of our favorite hobby or our favorite pastime or our news feed or whatever else it is in the world that we have made our top priority. We've been told that a man who is blessed, a happy man, is a man who avoids the influence of the world and instead delights in God's instruction. What does it mean to delight in something? What does it mean to delight in God's instruction? What does it look like to meditate on his, on his, in, his instruction? This is kind of where God grabbed me this week, and, and I think it's where the rubber hits the road for you and I uh, as we think about our faith and we think about what it looks like to truly delight in God's word. I think we need to seriously evaluate our life and our priorities and our decisions. And, and in order to illustrate this, I thought it's hard if we don't have the same idea of delight. And so at first when I read the word delight, I thought, well, what comes to mind when I think of the word delight? And some of you know that I'm a Chicagoan at heart. I was born in Milwaukee, lived in Chicago for many years, then moved here and then went back to Chicago, and I love Chicago. And more than Chicago, I actually love Chicago-style pizza. If you've ever had Chicago-style pizza, it's amazing. It's thick, deep dish. Usually the cheese is on the bottom, and it's really, really thick. Usually the meat is kind of mixed in with the cheese as well, and then it's topped with this huge layer of sauce, buttery crust, deep dish goodness. I have a favorite place, Giordano's. If you want to order some for me, I'll happily take it. It's amazing. I delight in Chicago-style pizza. New York pizza's fine. I'll take it. But Chicago-style pizza? Now that's where I find joy when it comes to food. I'm, I like food. I like, I like good food. I'm not like, you know, I, I'm not passionate about it, but I could be passionate about Chicago-style pizza. Brian's passionate about Nebraska football. I could be, and, uh, and banana pudding, I could be passionate about Chicago-style pizza. Something else I could be passionate about, something else that I find delight in, is chocolate and peanut butter. I'm not a dessert guy, but I love chocolate and peanut butter together. Some of you get that. You know what I mean with that? There's just something about it. My wife has found the key to my stomach, and on birthdays, there's always some chocolate peanut butter dessert that makes its way into our house. Whether it's a Chrissy Ortel chocolate peanut butter cake, or a homemade chocolate peanut butter pie, or just a big old bag full of Reese's peanut butter cups, preferably the ones that are Christmas trees or pumpkins because they have more peanut butter in them. Oh, man. See, these are where I find delight. You guys get my point? This is, this is, this is worldly delight. Maybe for you, you think of delight, and the first thing that comes to mind is a favorite pastime. Maybe for you, it's spending time playing a favorite sport, practicing a hobby, building something in your garage, whatever it is, working on a motorcycle. I don't delight in that, but I am doing that. Playing music, reading, writing. Maybe it's spending time with people. You just find joy spending time with people. Or maybe on the other side, you find joy in not spending time with people and in just being in your world. And that's where you find delight. That's where you find joy. And these things in themselves are not bad. These things in and of themselves are okay to bring us joy. But the question is, is that what, bring, what brings us the most delight? Is, are those things which influence us causing us more delight than God's word? It's interesting that the psalmist uses the word delight here rather than something else. You see, as we've talked through already, he's contrasting two ways to live. He's contrasting that person who walks in the counsel of the wicked with the person who delights in the law of the Lord. So he could have just said, well, the person who counsels in the law of the Lord is better than the person who counsels in the world. And that kind of makes sense. But the psalmist here is using this word to give us a greater picture of what obedience in Christ leads to in our lives. You see, the psalmist is using a word that is actually common in a lot of other parts of Scripture. We see the word joy, rejoice, and desire, enjoy, pleasure, 
happiness come up in a lot of scripture. And I, I've, got a, I've got just five that I want to read to you real quick just so you get a picture of how much God loves this word delight and how important it is to him that we don't come to him out of duty and obligation, but we come to him because we find joy. In Nehemiah 1, we read about finding delight in prayer. Nehemiah says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. In Psalm 37, 4, we read of delighting in God himself. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In Psalm 111, 2, we read of of delighting in God's work and the things that he does around us. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. In Romans 5, 3, we read about delighting in sufferings. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. James 1 picks up on the same theme, and he says, To count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. As you can see, this idea of delight is not exclusive to Psalm 1. We could go on and on and on, and I could have probably given you a hundred different verses in God's word that talk about this idea of delight. Sometimes it refers to us delighting in company of others. Sometimes it refers to delighting in a spouse. Sometimes it refers to all sorts of different types of delight. But this idea is, is still there that God wants us to take great joy in our relationship with him. In his book, When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy by John Piper, which is a book I highly recommend. And if something strikes you this morning and you're like, I want to study that a little more. I want to read more about what this looks like to delight in God. Highly recommend this book. Uh, if you've ever read John Piper, it can be kind of heavy, but it is scripture-laden. It is, it's probably more scripture than it is John Piper's words. He's an incredible man of God, and he has written about this. And here's what he says. He says that he came to the realization that my indwelling sin stands in the way of my full satisfaction in God. It opposes and perverts my pursuit of God. It opposed by making other things look more desirable than God. And it perverts by making me think I am pursuing God, joy in God, when in fact I am just in love with his gifts. Think about it this way. Something is going to drive your decisions, your thought processes, and your life. Either the world is going to have this influence and become the greatest cause of joy in your life, or God and his word are going to be the source of our greatest delight. Whether consciously or subconsciously, this decision is going to be made for us. And if we allow this decision to be a subconscious decision, the world is going to win. The wicked is going to win. Sin is going to win. It's so easy for our joy to be found in good things in the world. Food and money, relationships, people, homes, cars, kids and family, which in and of themselves are not bad, like I said. But when those are the things that bring us the greatest joy, it sets us on this trail that leads us to being the man who is going to perish. The decision to let the world and ultimately the way of sin be our source of delight often feels best and is usually the easiest. The actions to make delight in God's instruction, joy in his promises, satisfaction and pleasure in his word require conscious decision-making and keeping the end in mind. Let's ask ourselves another question as we look further in this verse. Um, why doesn't the author just say, well, now that you've meditated, don't sin, scoff, or, 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 or meditate on the counsel of the wicked? End of story, just move along. Why doesn't he kind of just keep those same phrases? Well, it would be simpler to just kind of say, don't be this, be this, end of story. But the psalmist 
as we've already said, connects with our thinking and with our feeling. And just as Jesus told parables to help people understand the things that he was teaching them, the psalmist gives us a very cool picture of what this looks like. So if you want to look in verse 3 with me, we're going to read this real quick again because it's been a few minutes and you may have forgotten. It says, uh, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Referring to the, the man who finds delight in God's word. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will stand, not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We're given two pretty vivid pictures here. We have the picture of a tree and the picture of chaff. And I want to describe that a little bit to you because, again, we sometimes have a tendency to just kind of gloss over things and say, yeah, I read God's word and yeah, it was great. Okay, but let's really get a picture of what does this mean? What is, what is this understanding uh, for us? This blessed man is like a tree, and not just any tree. It's like a tree that's planted by a steady source of water, not a tree that's planted in hard, hard clay that gets absolutely no nutrients and no water. This is a tree that is planted by steady sources of water. This is a tree that doesn't lose its leaves and consistently bears fruit. This is a tree that is constantly growing. This tree is a picture of the righteous man. This tree is a picture of the man who delights in God's word. Now, this isn't just your normal carry suburb tree that they plant when your house is built and it's about yay tall for several years and eventually it gets bigger. This is a tree that, if you understand it in the context, I read a couple things this week on, on some of the agrarian um, methods that they used. And sometimes being in the Middle East where it was very dry and arid in certain places, they would literally build these complex systems of canals. And I tried to find a picture, but they didn't have cameras back then, so nobody's got any pictures of it. And I don't think they do this today. But they built these complex systems of canals that literally would weave through property. And I imagine it to look kind of like what you see sometimes in like... Um, in, in Asian cultures where you see these rows of the rice paddies where there's water and they've directed the water to all these different areas. Well, they direct these canals around their property in places where they wanted these trees to grow so that literally every tree was surrounded by water. It wasn't like in your front yard where you've got a tree and it's got soil underneath it and it gets the water from underneath there. These trees literally were surrounded by water. On, they were on dry land, but they're surrounded by water and they could just soak up all the nutrients, all the things that they need. We're not talking about turning on a sprinkler every other day so that your grass gets greener and your crepe myrtle grows a little bit. We're talking about a tree that is planted with purpose, a tree that is planted in such a way that it has a constant flow of water. We're talking about planting ourselves in such a way we have a constant flow of God's word so that we can consistently grow even in a dry and arid climate. Or picture the screen, uh, the tree that's on the screen behind me. I chose this picture because it came up in something I was searching for. And it was really interesting because you see this tree is way up on this cliff. And you see this root system that kind of flows all the way down. Now, unlike what we think of with roots, usually you imagine when you've bought a tree and you plant it in your yard and you know the roots are in this big ball. And some of you may have done this recently. This tree didn't, didn't develop a root system like that. This tree was not able to get nutrients up at the top. So its root system went deep and deep, and deep, and just kept going, and going, and going, until apparently it found nutrients at the bottom of this cliff. Now, I hope this isn't photoshopped. I didn't photoshop it. It might have been. But anyways, it illustrates for us this idea of a tree that's planted in such a way that this one's not by water. So what did it do? Well, it went for the water. It searched for the water. It found the water. It found the nutrients it needed at the very bottom of this cliff that you see in this picture. Now take this picture and apply it to your life. 
What does it look like to be that connected with good instruction and godly wisdom? I was challenged as I was thinking through this this week. Am I this connected to God's word? Does God's word surround me literally in every way, shape, and form? Am I a tree that is just getting sprinkled when the sprinkler turns on? Or am I a tree that literally has my root system dug so deep into God's word that even in the most dry days, I'm still bearing fruit? It's certainly different for each of us what this looks like. And this message nor this psalm is about a legalistic way that this is supposed to happen or the list of rules that you're supposed to follow to make this happen. But naturally, if we desire something, if we find joy in something, we'll do everything we can to be near that thing, to experience that thing, to be with that person, whatever it is. I love Chicago-style pizza. I would pay the extra shipping to have it overnighted to me because I love it that much. Or there's Rosati's in Morrisville, which is pretty good, so I don't have to pay for all that stuff. But you get what I mean. So what does it look like to fill our minds with as much of God's word as we do of the television or the iPhone games, the blog posts, the Instagrams, the tweets? These things aren't bad, but do we take in as much of God's word as we take in of the wise, the, the wise, the worldly counsel that the world has to offer? The influence which we allow into our life are going to affect the outcome. And we have option B. We have this other picture here. And you may have read over that and said, chaff, hmm. Okay, the wicked are life chaff that the wind drives away. Well, I don't want to be driven away. That doesn't sound very good. Well, I thought of another picture for this one. I, I, was, I was having fun with these pictures. And I thought of going to a baseball game. Many of you can relate. Softball season's going on. We have lots of softball guys here. And if you go to a baseball game, I've never been to a baseball game where I haven't had a big old bag of shelled peanuts. Are we with me? Has, has anybody been to a baseball game and you didn't have that big old bag of peanuts in the shell? It's just a requirement. You can't go to a baseball game without that. Now, softball games, I haven't seen them there as much, but Town of Kerry probably wouldn't appreciate the mess that we would make. So you go to a, a Chicago Cubs game or to your favorite, you know, the Atlanta Braves or whoever it is you like. You go to the game and you buy this big old bag of peanuts. And then what do you do? You reach in, you throw a peanut in your mouth. No. Have you ever done that? I don't think I ever did it. I must have learned the hard way or I must have learned from watching my dad that you don't just throw the whole shell in your mouth because the shell is pretty much useless. Now, I'm I'm sure somebody, even in this room, could probably tell me that there is a use for that shell. Maybe it's great for fertilizer or something. I don't know. But in enjoying the taste of peanuts, that shell is pretty much pointless. And so what do we do? Well, we take that shell, we crack it, and we throw it on the ground because that's what we do at baseball games. Well, I thought of that as kind of a picture of what this chaff is. This chaff in this culture to, 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 these, to these original readers would have understood this to be where they have this wheat, and the wheat has a part of, uh, I don't understand exactly what it is. I probably could have gotten a picture of it and illustrated it for you, but I'm not into that. So you, you have this grain, and there's a part on it that is useless, a part that doesn't actually have any purpose to actually making bread or making the other things they use the wheat for. So what they do is they take like a shovel or they take a pitchfork or something and they'd, they'd throw it up in the air on a windy day. And what would literally happen is that the chaff or this part that is not useful, which is really lightweight and it just blows away. And what you're left with is that the grain drops to the ground because it's heavy and the wind can't blow it away. Well, it's kind of like that at the baseball game. We take the seat, we take the peanuts out, we throw the, the stuff that we don't want on the ground and we're left with the peanut. Well, what God's saying here in this psalm is that the person who seeks wise counsel is really going to ultimately end up being like the chaff, the thing that just blows away. It has no purpose. It has no value. To, it has no value in God's word. The psalmist is giving us a vivid picture of the Christian life. And the follower of Jesus is like that of a tree planted with deep roots, bearing fruit. And as my brother John Piper, I quoted him earlier, he says again, we are not laborers picking fruit. We are trees Bearing fruit. 
The imagery we have here in Psalm 1 goes hand in hand with the rest of God's word in giving us a vivid picture of the word work that God does in the lives of his followers, in the lives of his children. We bear fruit not because we've actually done any work. That's why we can't be described as laborers, harvesting a bountiful harvest and picking the fruit. The laborer does work to collect the harvest, but we're not laborers, we're the trees. We're bearing the fruit because we have chosen to build our foundation in God, and he is the one doing the work through us because we're delighting in him. Where our roots dig deep, we will find delight. And if we're going to bear God's fruit, we must dig into his word. The psalmist has drawn a contrast for us. Contrast in where we delight, what we are influenced by, what we crave, what we allow to bring us the greatest joy. And we have a choice to make in life. The choice is between two different ways of living, the way of the world, the way of the word. I'd like to revisit that story I started earlier. These two men, early on in my life, lived pretty similar lives. Early on in their lives, I wasn't alive when they were young. Early on in life, they both lived pretty similar lives. They both were striving to delight in God's word. They both were like the tree planted by streams of water. The first man is now 80 years old, uh, maybe nearly 80 years old. He's still married to his wife. He has raised children and grandchildren, and he has taught them to love Jesus and to love his word. This man has struggled at times. He has dealt with anger. He has been through seasons with serious medical conditions. And yet his faith is stronger today than it ever has been. This man continues to teach God's word. He continues to preach the gospel around the world. And he uses his business, as a businessman, as a platform for changing lives and for giving to causes that matter for eternity. How does this man have this story to tell? Well, this man's credit is not to himself, and he wouldn't take credit for this story. This man did not make it this far on his own. This man found his delight in God's word. This man is like a tree planted by streams of water. He is deeply rooted in God's word. This man loves the word, and he loves Jesus, and this man has left a legacy for his family and for his friends that points not to himself, but to Jesus and to his work in his life. This man's life has affected mine. The other man has also affected my life. This other man is in his mid-50s. He divorced his wife after 20 years of marriage. He left a trail of broken relationships, not just in the family, friends, people in his community, people in the business world. In fact, many, many, most of his relationships were left in shambles. He left behind three children. He walked away from everything he knew. This man used to love Jesus. He used to teach biblical principle, as we said. He started his life firmly rooted in God's word. But now he loves himself more than anything else in the world. At some point, he uprooted himself from the foundation which he had built, the foundation which God was part of for his family in which they desired God. They delighted in God and God was working in through them and they were bearing fruit. And he slowly began to take counsel from the wicked. Health and wealth became his priority and eventually became his God. It didn't happen all at once and it, it, took, it took years, it took time. It was small decisions here and there to find joy in fleshly pleasures. But it didn't stay little because it never does. And it didn't stay hidden because you can't hide this. This man deliberately but slowly chose to walk away from the streams upon which he had been planted. And he chose the counsel of the wicked. He chose the way of sinners. He chose to sit with the scoffers because he found satisfaction and joy in this new life. But he's left a trail of brokenness and hurt behind him. And where fruit once was abundant, nothing of eternal value grows today. And he knows it. 
And this is the devastating reality of a story that no one expected, and he didn't even expect himself. We have two pictures of who we're going to be, of the decisions we're going to make in life, of the way that we're going to follow, the way of the man who delights in God's word, the the way of the man who delights in the ways of the world. The psalmist has written Psalm 1 to challenge our decisions with whom we are going to allow to influence our lives and the ways in which we find our greatest joy. We're going to choose one of two things. We're going to choose to listen to bad advice and seek unwise counsel. We're going to choose to associate with sin discreetly and then blatantly. We're going to choose to become like those influences. We're going to choose to be influenced by the word. We're going to choose to find our joy in God's instruction. Choose to spend time in his word. Choose to communicate with him and allow his spirit to convict us and then obey. The wicked, those influenced by the world, will not survive God's judgment, but the righteous will. So I have one last question, though, as we, as we, end, as we go to the end of this passage. We see, um, does finding our greatest joy in God make us righteous? The, the, the passage says that the righteous are known by God, but the wicked will perish. Well, let's take a look at God's word. God's word in Psalm 14 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3 echoes this, says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So now you're thinking, David, you just told us we've got to delight in God's word, but now you're telling us it doesn't actually have a lasting effect? You're telling us that we have to find our greatest joy in who God is, we've got to delight in God's word, but now you're telling us that we can't be righteous, it doesn't make us righteous? What's the deal? I know at first glance it may seem that way. But we have the privilege of knowing the full story. We have the privilege of knowing the rest of Romans, of knowing the gospel truth. We have the privilege to see that Psalm 1 is actually pointing to Jesus. We read this in, Psalm, or in Romans 10.3, that the goal of the law, which we just talked about what the law can refer to, the goal of the instruction of God, the goal of the Psalms, even Psalm 1, is Christ for righteousness for all who believe. God does count our sin, and God does expect righteousness. The best part of all, as he provided that in Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness since we can't possibly be righteous on our own. The whole idea of delighting only in God and his word, that is the end goal, and that is a result of finding our righteousness in Jesus. But the reality is we have a sin nature, and we aren't going to find our greatest joy every single moment in God's word. But we also have Jesus it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake was made to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Long before Jesus, Psalm 1 pointed to our need for Jesus, our need for a Savior. We have Jesus, and Jesus makes us righteous. But the Christian life is not automatic. The foundation we have to press into for our faith to grow does not just happen automatically. It happens with careful attention thoughtful decisions as we dig our roots deep into God's word. We have a daily decision to make, and we have a challenge in front of us every moment of every day. We're going to choose what influences us, what brings us joy, what counsel we choose to listen to. And we can choose the way of the world, which quickly leads to wickedness. We can choose to let politicians and news, temporary pleasures, Facebook, Twitter, social media, which we hold so dear, to be our driving motivation every day, the place where we get the advice, the place we look to for how we ought to respond in emotion and thought and feeling to God. Or we can choose to delight in God's word. 
Psalms gives us the freedom in life to struggle with life, to struggle with God, to be honest with him. And what you need to hear from this psalm, what I need to hear from this psalm, what I'm learning from this psalm and from the rest of psalms is that God is so intimate and so loving that he wants this relationship with us. He wants to connect with our hurts, our pains, our joys, and our excitement. The way to this relationship has been made possible through Jesus, who is our righteousness. This only comes by being rooted deeply in him, by being honest with him, and by finding our ultimate delight in him. You can choose to meditate day and night in the Psalms, and in the Gospels, and in the letters of Paul. You can choose to find our source for strength in tough times from the prayers and songs of the Psalms, prayers that connect with our thinking and our feeling with God's design for our life. And we can, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, find our foundation and our confidence, our greatest pleasure in this book and in the God who gave it to us. So I leave you with two questions. I leave myself with two questions. What way have you chosen, and what brings you the greatest delight? Let's pray.